Welcome to this episode of To Differ is Divine, a podcast about spiritual permeability from the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina, hosted by Bishop Sam Rodman, Bishop of the Diocese, and Rabbi Raquel Jurevics, the Diocese Rabbi-in-Residence, and former leader of Yavna, a Jewish renewal community located in Raleigh. My name is Summerlee Walter, the producer of this podcast, and I'll be introducing each episode. To Differ is Divine is an invitation to devotional friendship between souls on different paths, including those who do not follow a particular religion. Our host will explore the writings and practices of their respective faith traditions as a conversation between different expressions of God. This exploration of spiritual permeability is a way to enrich one's own practice while contributing to a world without religious prejudice or fear. In this episode, Bishop Sam and Rabbi Raquel discuss one of the psalms that speaks most powerfully to Bishop Sam, Psalm 51. The psalm is a plea for forgiveness attributed to King David after he is rebuked by the prophet Nathan for his role in another man's death. Our hosts dive deep on the ideas of repentance, forgiveness, sacrifice, and reconciliation with God and with each other. It is a theologically and spiritually enriching conversation. Like all episodes of To Differ is Divine, this episode includes detailed notes to provide additional context for the religious practices and concepts our hosts discuss. We hope you will take the time to read them and learn a little bit more about an unfamiliar faith tradition, or maybe even your own. With that, I invite you to enjoy Speaking of the Psalms, Psalm 51, Episode 5 of To Differ is Divine from the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina. Welcome to our podcast, To Differ is Divine, and this is Bishop Sam Rodman in the Diocese of North Carolina, and I'm here with Rabbi Raquel Jurovics, and today we're going to be having a conversation around a couple of our favorite psalms, and the psalms are an important part both of our scriptural base, but also in the liturgy of our respective worship. So we're going to share a little bit, not so much from a scholarly perspective, but more from a personal point of view of how these psalms speak to each of us within our traditions and also learning from each other's tradition about how the psalm is understood and how it is experienced not just by individual faithful people, but by the gathered body in our respective traditions. I'm going to begin with Psalm 51, which is one of my favorite psalms and one that I often use to pray with, and I'll say more about that in a bit, but I'm going to read the first half of Psalm 51, which is verses 1 through 10, and then just talk a little bit about what I know of its context, but also how it speaks to me. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. In your great compassion, blot out my offenses. Wash me through and through from my wickedness and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so you are justified when you speak and upright in your judgment. Indeed, I have been wicked from my birth a sinner from my mother's womb. For behold, you look for truth deep within me and will make me understand wisdom secretly. 
Purge me from my sin, and I shall be pure. Wash me, and I shall be clean indeed. Make me hear of joy and gladness, that the body you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. So Psalm 51 begins on a very, as you can tell from the content, a confessional tone, very much carries with it the heart of one who is repenting, a repentant sinner, if you will. And I think that speaks deeply to me, in part because I was raised in a tradition, a traditional sort of branch of Christianity that sometimes was a little bit heavy-handed with respect to our sinfulness. And for better or for worse, that has shaped me. And therefore, this psalm speaks to me and speaks to the roots of my own journey of faith. Part of what I find striking in this psalm is the line in verse 4, where it's addressed to God, obviously, as is clear from the context. And the psalmist writes, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And the reason I'm starting there is that while I think at one level, there is deep truth in that which is to say that in my understanding of our relationship with the Holy One, when we fall into the sinfulness of a relationship that has gone astray or missed the mark, which are different understandings of the word sin, or when we find ourselves in some way, shape, or form behaving in a way that cuts us or feels as though it cuts us off from God, it does put God at the center of the question, what does it mean to sin? And I do think that's where the conversation begins. Don't think it's where the conversation ends. One could read verse four and say, well, if you've done something that is off base or is dishonest or has missed the mark or is sinful, make it right with God and all is well. Well, Not so much. (laughs) In my journey, it begins with God, which is what I think the psalmist is saying, but it extends to other persons I may have harmed. It extends to myself if I've done something that is actually harmful to my own wholeness and well-being. And I believe, actually, that anything that harms another is also harmful to me because I don't think that that's how we were created to behave and to become. In later life, I've extended the understanding of who I need to hold myself accountable to beyond my siblings in the human family, but to the creatures of God, to God's creation, to the earth. And that for me is important in terms of not only accountability, but also in terms of how I understand what it means to ask for forgiveness. Because part of the journey of repentance is not only change, but it's about restoring relationships. And sometimes in order for relationships to be restored, a person has to own their bad behavior and to ask for forgiveness. And I deeply believe that there is a gift of freedom, of joy, and of liberation in that process of owning one's responsibility for one's bad behavior. I'm going to stop there and invite Rabbi Raquel to comment both from your own journey and from your tradition around the confessional nature of the first part of Psalm 51. In reading this psalm and looking at the context, 
that it offers, that as we are to imagine David writing this after being confronted by the prophet Nathan, who rebuked him for his putting the husband, Uriah, of a woman, David desired Bathsheba at risk of death, which did occur, freeing Bathsheba as a widow to marry the king. It's such an extraordinary kind of transgression to have offered up as an example to us as something that calls us to turn to God in repentance. Most of us are not, thank goodness, committing transgressions of such a dramatic nature. And yet this outpouring that David composes here pushes us right up against all that we hope for from God. He uses in the first verse that you read, Bishop Sam, the three qualities of God that show up constantly in our liturgy, chen v'chesed v'rachamim, that God's compassion, his mercy, rachamim is a kind of mother love, that all calling all of these qualities of divine faithfulness and care and reliability, massing them together, as it were, as a bulwark against one's own sense of very deep guilt and sin. In my ear, not only does this psalm express the deep remorse we experience when we believe that we have done something that is truly transgressive, whether we imagine it as only a sin against God. And Bishop Sam, I think you're right. I'm not sure how the things we do to one another can, in fact, be resolved by turning to God to forgive us without engaging with our siblings to figure out how to repair the relationship. And that is the understanding of teshuvah, repentance in Jewish tradition, is, is that the repair has to be made initially with the person you understand yourself to have harmed. In this case, in reading these first verses, I feel that I'm in the presence of someone who has indeed done something that will haunt them, that will not leave their conscience, no matter what happens, and that they are expressing a very deep desire that God could change their very nature. I don't think that in the largest sense of the tradition, the idea that anyone is born with iniquity, has, has an inherent leaning towards being an evil person, because we're taught in so many other places in Scripture that children don't carry the burden of their parents' sin. But I think that when you have to confront something that you've done, and let's assume we've all done things that even many years later we, we may regret, it's a, a way, in my reading of this, our, our friend David here is so grief-stricken by the, the magnitude of what he's done that he's literally asking God to change his very nature and to recreate him in some way so that he wouldn't be capable of repeating this sin. So there's perhaps a lesson there about repentance being a means to a personal acts of transformation that make it possible for us to resist the temptation to repeat something we might have done in the past that was sinful. I think that the I've sinned against you alone is such an, a wonderful evasion of what has happened to poor Uriah and the kind of burden that that places on the whole tenor of David's relationship with Bathsheba. I do understand, I think, that sense of, oh my goodness, I've done something that God probably can't forgive. So let me remind God of the abundance of divine mercy. and. Maybe God can make me different because 
at this point, I don't know how to make myself different. Mm. I'm so glad that you named the common understanding we have with the Psalm 51, that it is attributed to David after the events that you described, and and the devastating impact when he's confronted, as you said, by Nathan, who tells a parable that really gets David's sense of fairness and justice activated, and he reacts to this parable about a king who has unfairly taken the one lamb that belongs, the precious lamb that belongs to his poor neighbor, and takes it for himself. And after David expresses his outrage, Nathan says to David, you are the man. And uh, <laughs> we have a different association with that, <laughs> that set uh, of words. You are the man. You're the man. But in this instance, you are the man is not a good thing. And David hears him, which to me is part of the compelling connection between that account and this psalm. Because the person that wrote this psalm is deeply engaged with their own sense of responsibility for what has happened. And as you just said a moment ago so beautifully, the invitation to God to help me become a better person or find a better path or discover a better way is the focus of the second part of the psalm. So I'm going to read that now, and then we can play with it a bit. Verse 11 of Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Give me the joy of your saving help again, and sustain me with your bountiful spirit. I shall teach your ways to the wicked, and sinners shall return to you. Deliver me from death, O God, and my tongue shall sing of your righteousness. O God of my salvation, open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth shall proclaim your praise. Had you desired it, I would have offered sacrifice, but you take no delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God is a troubled spirit, and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Be favorable and gracious to Zion, and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with the appointed sacrifices, with burnt offerings and oblations. Then shall they offer young bullocks upon your altar. So the beginning of this second half, you can feel in the author, in this case, David, we believe his passionate appeal to the Holy One to renew and to make him the person that he has not acted as though he would be, which is not a very clear way of saying David has been acting out and he asks for God's help to stop. And more than that, he asks God's help to put him back on the path to who he was created to be, which is a beloved child of God. And that is a powerful request. And I dare say that part of the reason I am drawn to this psalm is that I believe that God responds to David's request. I believe God responds to my requests when I ask that of God, and I believe that God responds to your requests when you speak to God with that honesty, with that authenticity, and with that integrity. What is born out of that is a reconnection. So if our sin interrupts the connection we have with God, our repentance and our request for forgiveness opens up 
the channel again. And perhaps that is a part of the wisdom that in the earlier part of the psalm, David asks to understand the wisdom that's held secretly, the mystery of that invitation and reconnection. I love the fact that in this part of the psalm, David names that sacrifice is great to a point, but if your heart is not open and acknowledging the hurt and asking for change, not much can happen. And then, of course, at the end of the psalm, he hedges his bed and say, well, once we do that, sacrifice does have its place. Let's <laughs> let's honor uh, the way that we've understood our relationship. But the deeper truth of what takes place in the human heart is really, for me, the compelling drama of the psalm. It is a life and death matter. And not just for the carnage that David's created by the murder of Uriah, but also for David's own life and health and soul. And I love, and this is the last thing I'll say before I invite Rabbi Raquel to respond, I love that in the intensity of David's experience that God may, in fact, grant his prayer and desire and wish to be forgiven, that he's going to spread the word, that that is God's nature. He's going to tell others. I just love that that is a part of David's reaction and response to the beginnings of a restored relationship. Those who experience the healing power of God's love feel compelled to share that with others. Indeed, I have always loved the verse that is in my edition of Psalms is verse 12. It's probably verse 11 for you. Fashion a pure heart for me. And in the Hebrew, the word for fashion is the word for creation. So it is, again, that that sense that, that David understands a very deep need for his repentance, his return, his teshuvah, his coming back, has to be in the form of someone who is completely renewed. And he asks that an upright, a, in a sense, a respectable, a correct spirit be renewed in his midst. Bakir Bibi is like in my deepest innards, in the depths of, of my own self. And what he fears is being sent away from the divine presence and ceasing, ceasing to have the divine spirit accessible to him. So he's describing a fear of losing something that he has counted on. And perhaps this explains why before we have any evidence that he gives thought to how might he in fact act in such a way as to mitigate the sin that he's committed the violent act that he made possible, that he's weighing the cost. Now, what could he lose if he and God do not manage this transformation that he's yearning for? There's a word in verse 15, save me from blood guilt. And the Hebrew is damim. And in Genesis, when Cain kills Abel, the text says, the blood of your brother cries out from the earth. But it's blood's in the Hebrew, it's a plural. And here again, it's damim is a plural. And it's the sense that you remove one person from the human equation. How many others would there have been children to Uriah and Bathsheba? Are there other souls implicated in this decision that David made that cost Uriah his life? But his life was implicated with many other lives. And I find that recollection of the sense that harming another person 
is costly beyond the immediacy of the singular harm. It's outwelling and it causes us to have to recognize that we are so deeply interconnected with others in the aggregate that even when we think, well, all I did was annoy the person next to me, well, it might be that that was the last straw for that person's day. And when they went home, something not so terrific happened in a kind of domino fashion. That as we hope that the kindnesses we do bear fruit, sometimes the unkindnesses carry consequences we can't imagine. And I think David is is expressing an awareness of that, this sense that it's not just that I could bring offerings, which would be construed as an acknowledgement that I recognize my responsibility, but I have to change. My heart has to be different. And it has to be different because of things I do, not just what you might do. And I think that the action that David is hoping God will take in this case is to enable him, he being David, to make the internal changes he now needs. There's a verse in Hosea 14.2, take with you words and come back to the eternal. Say to God, let there be forgiveness for all wrongdoing so that we may take what is good and give in payment the fruit of our lips. And basically, Hosea is saying, it's not about the bullocks. It's about the conversation. What do you have to say to God? And what are you looking for to hear in return? And how does this reciprocal messaging transform you? That there is in the closing verses of Psalm 51, this sense that you will want offerings offered in righteousness. And there's a an understanding in Jewish tradition that the people would not ever sin intentionally, that we don't choose to offend God. We might transgress against one another, but to be outright in rebellion to God is something that human beings don't choose to do. And that the offerings that are brought to the tabernacle or later to the temple were in line with a notion of rebalancing disordered relationships. But the relationship with God is one that is undertaken in that kind of private conversation that lives within our heart, and one that requires the transformation to be personal before we could even presume to bring an offering to mark that we had taken the lesson. And reading the psalm, I always imagine David feeling pressed to identify what's the next step for me. What do I have to do, not just say, that will mark me as changed as a result of recognizing what I've done, repenting of it. My my teshuva, my return, can't be complete until I do something about the harm that I've created. And that's all in the white space. That's not specific here. But I think that this requires us, if we put ourselves in the position of someone who feels burdened by transgression, to think about, okay, I've acknowledged it. I've confessed. I've offered my repentance. I'm open to God helping me. But what do I do next? And one of the things that I think is a part of both our traditions, again, is reconciliation with God restores our relationship with one another. And that's where the communal dimension to this psalm, which is part of what inspires me, is so powerful, because parts of this psalm, verses of this psalm, 
are actually embedded in our morning prayer service, which can be offered on a Sunday, but is also offered on our weekday. Many of us use it as a personal devotion in the mornings. And depending on where you start the service, one of the opening lines is, open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth shall proclaim your praise, from verse 16 in my translation. And in addition, there's a set of couplets that are called suffrages that introduce the Lord's Prayer later in the service, and it includes portions of the three verses that go together, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me, give me the joy of your saving help again, and sustain me with your bountiful spirit. And this idea that's celebrated in our corporate worship, in our communal worship, that part of what happens next when we have repented is that we reconnect with the community. That which has maybe come between us, or in more dramatic sense, broken us apart, is begun to be healed. And that's expressed in part through the liturgy where we are called back together called back to the gathered community. And I love that that is somehow woven into the rhythm of this psalm and the way that it's then appropriated and embraced in the worship in our tradition and perhaps in yours as well. That word renew is quite powerful. Hmm. What I think that gives us in the context of this psalm, when David says, and a righteous and upright a reliable spirit, renew in the midst of me. In some ways, David has made a turn from believing that he's he's so bad, he must have been bad from the womb, that he's looking at himself and he's defining himself in ways that aren't really congruent with Jewish teaching about how souls come into being or our nature when we arrive in the world, where we arrive with the capacity to choose for ill or to choose for good but no predetermined necessity that anybody act one way or the other, that he understands at this point in his outpouring, oh, I had that righteous spirit. I know better. I knew better. I could know better again. And there's some tremendous power in that sense of renewal. I think that something that I tend to read a little bit differently than what you were describing earlier about the relationship between getting ourselves more in alignment with God and with one another in terms of which goes where, I think that my my understanding within my own tradition is if we should have done something that we believe is a transgression against God, that we understand it in spite of, of being told, well, nobody would really rebel against God. In our heart, we may feel that by acting in a particular way, what we've done does transgress against God. Maybe our own sense of how inappropriate it is to cause pain to beings created in the divine image, that's enough to give us that sense of of sinfulness towards God. And my understanding of the tradition is that if we believe we've offended God, we may repent for that and find a way to realignment privately, that that's something that we and God in our conversations can sort out between us that we can figure out how we understand the need to change and we can listen for a divine response that helps guide us in that direction. 
that offenses we understand we have committed against other people, we're obligated to deal with the people first. There's a great deal of outwelling engagement of others' help if we find that a particular individual doesn't want to accept our repentance, doesn't want to recognize that we are truly regretful for harm that is done, that we're truly committed to changing our behavior or to making recompense. Sometimes somebody else is so offended, they can't take yes for an answer. And there's all kinds of ways of bringing in friends from the community or going to one's spiritual leaders, and that at least you have to try a number of times with a person before giving up. But that if you go with that contrite heart to God, God's always there, God's always listening. And that that kind of repentance is always assured of a positive response, because that chen v'chesed v'rachamim, that abundant compassion and care and womb-like love that God manifests towards us, removes all those barriers that we sometimes put up ourselves when we feel offended and don't want to forgive, which I think goes back to a conversation we had Uh, In an earlier session about love your neighbor, I've met my neighbor and my neighbor can be really annoying. So how am I to love that person? And here, sometimes we find that reconciling with our neighbor is extremely difficult, no matter how sincere we are. And so there's an assurance that God knows the effort we're making and we have steps to go through to try to break down that resistance and encourage our sibling to have the same compassion towards us, which of course means we have to try to come up with it if somebody asks us for forgiveness that we would prefer to deny. Thank you for that insight and particularly for underscoring that the verse about against you only have I sinned does not actually presume that we start with God. That in fact, sometimes by starting with our neighbor, we are in essence honoring God in them as part of that work to repair and restore and reconcile. Even as you were speaking, it reminded me of what I said at the beginning of our conversation that my understanding and association with sin is still too much influenced by an early heavy handedness that I sometimes struggle to escape. And I'm always grateful when. A combination of God's holy word and a trusted friend can help me to see that there is another way to embrace the opportunity without the heavy-handed judgment that sometimes I carry forward on my journey. So thank you for that, and thank you for this really in-depth exploration of a psalm that has great meaning for us and for our communities. Join us next week as Rabbi Raquel and Bishop Sam discuss Rabbi Raquel's selected psalm.